Welcome to Evidence in Action, a podcast from the Urban Institute. I'm your co-host, Sarah Rosenwartel. I have the honor of being Urban's president. And I'm your co-host, Kimberlyn Leary, Executive Vice President of the Urban Institute. In this podcast, Kim and I are going to explore the role of evidence. What it is, who makes it, who can use it, who should be using it, and how it can help us to shape policy and achieve better social, economic, and environmental outcomes. And on every episode, we'll be joined by a brilliant guest. But for our first episode, we have a special show. Sarah and I are going to speak with one another, introducing the perspectives and life experiences that we bring to our roles, all the while exploring the role of evidence in our own work and in our careers. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Kim. How you doing? I'm good. So excited to be in dialogue with you. So tell me a little bit about yourself and where you grew up. So I grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side in a middle-income housing project that was built to be a integrated community. And I'm convinced that the perspective I gained in early days of my life has shaped the rest of my career. What about you? Where did you grow up? <laughs> well, I grew up all over the U.S. My family's from New Orleans. Uh, I was born there, but we moved around a lot when I was a child. So every two, three years, I was in a different school in a different part of the country, sometimes living in large urban areas like Chicago and Cleveland, other times in much smaller communities. So being the new kid, you have to learn an environment pretty quickly. And just reading a lot when I was a child, children's biographies of politicians and scientists, but also of folks who, a few who looked like me, Harriet Tubman, Sacagawea, and others. We often talk about the Urban Institute being about people and places, whether those communities are urban or rural or something in between, and you've seen it all. Um, you didn't start out in public policy. Tell us a little bit about that journey. The first part of my career was as a clinical psychologist. And what I discovered early on is that the tools we had as psychologists to understand what was going on in people's lives and in their heads and their hearts weren't the only tools needed to understand the challenges they were facing. So it became pretty clear to me that in working in public sector hospitals, for example, that uh, you needed to understand the transportation systems that did or didn't allow people to make their appointments on time, that you needed to understand the childcare challenges that they faced or the irregular work schedules in order to have a full picture of what their lives were like. And that's where I became interested in public policy. How did you even decide when you were growing up as a kid what you wanted to study? How did you become a psychologist? <laughs> well, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a child, but uh, that didn't seem to be an option at the time. So instead of going to outer space, I went to inner space. Go back to New York for just a little bit. The, the young Sarah growing up, were you thinking you wanted to be the CEO of the Urban Institute then? What did you want to be when you were growing up? I was sure I was going to be a research scientist. And one summer, I, I applied to college. All the physics and chemistry departments thought that was where I was coming. And then that summer before I went to college, I worked for a New York City council person ah. and uh, helped her to organize a conference about a great urban park that was in our district, the Riverside Park in Manhattan. 
And I worked with policymakers in the mayor's office and on the local community councils. And I got the bug. And I never took another math or science class again. (laughs) True enough. And yet, at the Urban Institute, where we so value science and evidence, that interest in the scientific method is certainly a part of your job and mine as well. Exactly. So you've bridged us a little bit to the work we do here at Urban. What was it that made you excited about what the work that we do here, about this applying evidence to policy choice? Well, it's quite a talented community with such uh, sector and domain expertise in so many relevant areas. You know, we have data scientists, we have researchers, we even have historians that are part of the urban community. You just described in some ways why I love this work, too. We're really part of a community where every day, if you look at another aspect of the work, you're learning something new. I always say it's a bit of an intellectual smorgasbord, you know, but at the heart of it, it's all about making lives better for individual people. And it's funny because once upon a time, I think we really imagined change makers being people in government, whether that was in the mayor's office or in a state agency or a member of Congress. But change is coming from all parts of society today. And it's the students who are on the streets advocating for change. It's the philanthropists who are investing capital. It's social entrepreneurs. And so we're really trying to think about how do we make sure we're answering the questions they care about? And how do we make sure that we are giving them actionable answers? And yet all of that work we ensure is grounded in what we know about what we can find in data and research evidence. Absolutely. And I think it it speaks to what it means to be a contemporary research and policy institution. We're nonpartisan, that's true, but we are willing to take a stand on evidence and we go where the evidence leads us. You know, I I like to think of us as also a, a kind of knowledge and action incubator. We do a lot of convening. It's Always great when we're all back together in the room. Um, I I think we miss that a lot to have people. um, But technology has also taught us how we can convene across the country people who are all facing a similar challenge. One of the great examples we have is the work we did with the CDC when they were working, investing in communities all over the country who were trying to overcome hesitancy around vaccines. And by bringing the various different NGOs that were doing that work together, we learned a lot from them and we were able to distill that learning. That's what evidence in action means. It It's about learning from one another. Sometimes the evidence is data and we have micro simulation models we use to predict and guess how different policies will work. But sometimes it's the experience that people have trying to do things. Sometimes it's even the lived experience of people in communities who themselves are wrestling with those problems. That is evidence. That's the kind of insight that we need to be gaining, recognizing that sometimes the best insight is closest to the ground. When we talk about a platform and bringing people together and the importance of learning, I think that's one of the things that I appreciate the most about the Urban Institute, that we are ourselves a learning organization. Every scientific organization needs to constantly be thinking about 
how can we do it better? And luckily, we have brilliant folks across urban, many of them next generation scholars who are asking those hard questions. And we hope it's not only making us better, it's going to help us make the fields that we work in really appreciate the best ways to tackle these problems. Absolutely. You know, for knowledge to be effective in the field and for science to be relevant, we do need the perspectives and observations that come from the best of our community-engaged methods, from community science approaches, and partnership with communities where researchers recognize the expertise that community members bring, and we find the right ways for communities to be able to leverage our research insights as well. So, Sarah, you know, we live in a deeply divided world, and people seemingly only trust others with the same belief. That's a challenge for uh, all of us, but it's a challenge here at Urban. Let me ask you, is it worth studying what works, trying to learn and, and persuade, when too often it seems like change flows from power rather than persuasion? The divisions in our country are more and more profound, stark, extreme, and it's hard to imagine influencing decision makers when they can't even agree about the fundamental rules of the road for developing policy. And it's easy to get a little bit discouraged about the business we're in. And then you stop and you think about what happened when the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, policymakers had to respond with urgency and speed to put in place supports to help our society survive while everyone was locked inside their apartments and homes. And policymakers drew on what they knew. And I think of the child tax credit, which was essentially the single largest income support for low-income families during the pandemic. And it turns out it ended up lifting 14 million children that would have otherwise been in poverty, out of poverty, whether there was enough food to eat on the table, whether or not they were going to lose their homes or whatever the other challenges were. We know from the evidence that when you avoid poverty, people's long-term outcomes are so much better. And they were able to do that because of work that many organizations, including ours, had done to make the case for how to design a more efficient delivery system to get the child tax credit into families' homes. So there are teachable moments, and they come in many forms, even amidst a world of great political division. So it is easy to get discouraged, but then I look around and I see evidence in action all day long. And I start to feel like there's nothing more important that we could do. Completely agree with your enthusiasm for evidence and for how exciting it is to really know how much of a difference it can make. But I couldn't agree more that even so, there are collective interests that we have. And I think about, you know, infrastructure, which uh, has been in the news for this last while. We may differ, different political factions may have different ideas about what infrastructure should be prioritized or who should pay for it and whether it should 
be sort of federally coordinated or left up to states. But at the end of the day, we want roads and we want to build bridges, quite literally. (laughs) I also think about that, you know, when people apply for benefits or services from government agencies. Absolutely no one is pleased when they discover a cumbersome bureaucratic application process. So when we can make things better and use our evidence to figure out where we need to target our interventions, uh, I think we can meet collective interest. And that's where I feel some hope as we go forward. You know, we live in a time when there's a lot of distrust of public institutions. And I think some of that is because people aren't feeling that society is working that well for them today that it is a reality that income inequality is growing, that some people find systems and educational opportunities and employment mean higher and higher wages for their families. But for most Americans, that's not the lived experience. And so to the extent to which we can apply our work to trying to tackle those problems, we are trying to remedy those fundamental issues of trust in the public sector. And I think that's what Evidence in Action is about, too. It's trying to help solve the really big, hard questions bit by bit so that we can build more trust and ultimately, I hope, repair our governance as well. One of the important things to do to build trust is to continuously look at how we can improve the data upon which we are building our analyses. Never has this been more important than it is now when we're starting to look at artificial intelligence systems. AI systems are built on scanning and pulling information that exists from all kinds of sources. And if those sources represent a society that has inherent biases in it, if some people are better represented in the data than others, we're going to, in some ways, bake into the next generation and the next generation results that continue and perpetuate those advantages or disadvantages. So we constantly have to be questioning our research methods. We have to be questioning our sources. We need to be digging in and getting transparent about how information is being used in the things that are going to increasingly govern our lives. Absolutely. The artificial intelligence is the next frontier, uh, the frontier that's already here. And, you know, I, I think you, you're describing the balance point because there, there is transformative possibility with these new technologies. They're revolutionary in many ways. And yet we also know, as you just described so beautifully, that the potential exists that we simply take our biases and inequities and transfer them to a new platform. And that's where the kind of rigorous interrogation that you mentioned is so absolutely critical to the work we do. So many businesses are data-driven businesses now. So many, uh, the way my kids are taught is based on learning about what they are or are not getting right in their quizzes and answers. So the feedback is now different. Data is going to be running so many aspects of our lives, and the sources are so much broader than they've ever been before. And That means, if anything, the kinds of methods and tools and techniques we have that are rigorous and disciplined are only more important, not less, even in a challenging moment. We're going to have to learn what it means to partner with an AI platform. We're used to human partnerships. We're used to partnerships with communities. But the nature of partnership and dialogue is probably also on the horizon for change. 
So Kim, when you and I decided that we wanted to do this podcast, we had a a goal in mind. And the goal really has been to help people see that evidence is a part of everyday lives, that all of us are relying upon evidence, putting it evidence into action in our lives, and to make sure that our policymakers and decision makers realize how important it is in their lives. So we're going to ask each of the guests who come onto this show a simple question. Can they think of a time when they saw evidence in action, when data or facts shaped a decision that they were somehow a part of or watching, and as a result, there was a better outcome for people or communities? So let me start by asking you that question first. When have you seen evidence in action? It's a great question, Sarah, and I'm excited to see what our guest will bring to that question. You know, when I was in the Obama administration, I worked for the White House Council on Women and Girls, and our job was to set up a, an initiative to enhance life outcomes for women and girls of color. But we needed to know what were the key disparities and also the evidence-based interventions that might make a difference for that population. And we turned to the Urban Institute. We turned to a microsimulation model called the social genome, which allows you to ask what if questions. What if we were able to enhance the, uh, the math and science scores of girls of color in high school? And answers to those questions that came from that microsimulation model enabled us to, to really decide where we would direct our policy. So that's a clear example of where evidence from a microsimulation, a what-if question, enabled us to make some real-world decisions. What about your experience, Sarah? What's an example of evidence in action? Well, I like to think there's a lot of that happening in the halls here at the Urban Institute, and I'll give an urban example as well, one that was a real moment of pride for many of our colleagues. In 2014, the Supreme Court was considering the case of King v. Burwell. It was the second time that the Supreme Court heard a challenge to the Affordable Care Act. In essence, there was an argument that some fuzzy language in the statute meant something different than how it was being implemented by the government. And it meant something, the plaintiffs argued, that would have made the benefits available to many fewer people. And in the decision, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that the plaintiff's interpretation of the statutory language couldn't possibly have been what Congress meant because analysis by the Urban Institute and another one of our fellow research institutions said how that would have affected the outcomes and those outcomes were inconsistent with clear congressional intent. And that was a case where that kind of clear evidence had a consequence of whether or not access to uh, health insurance was available to millions and millions of Americans. So that was a pretty good day for evidence in action. Absolutely. So, Kim, thank you so much for going on this journey with me to help explore what evidence means and why it matters. And maybe we'll learn some things, I'm sure we will, along the way that can shape our work and maybe can help our listeners, too. Please join us again for future episodes of Evidence in Action. Thank you, Sarah. That was a terrific conversation. Thanks, Kim. It was great to be with you. And join us this season for Evidence in Action. 
for great conversations about important ways to drive change with a talented and captivating group of guests. If you'd like to learn more about us, go to our website at urban.org. And you can follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been Evidence in Action, created by the Urban Institute and Pod People. I'm your co-host, Kimberlyn Leary. And I'm Sarah Rosenwortel. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.